0: I'm super excited to announce the arrival of the standard age signature collection with the release of the Avant T. Borrowing the term from Audi speak, this shirt is a daily driver offering an ideal level of utility. 100% cotton fabric developed from North Carolina grown cotton, then made, cut, sewn, and dyed within a five mile radius in Los Angeles, California, resulting in an incredibly small carbon footprint. These are something I'm super proud of and have worked on for years. These pocket tees come standard with a larger size pocket, so there's no need to stretch out your collar while hanging your sunglasses. The larger size also securely holds your shades for those times you lean over to tie your shoe or bend over to pick something up. The bottom contour of the pocket wastes no space the same way a triangular pocket does. The pocket size also perfectly accommodates your passport for convenient access at the gate. The sides of the shirt and under the arm are gusseted, This detail, borrowed from an ice-climbing jacket, offers better range of motion while preventing your shirt's lift when raising your arms. So, be it in the driver position or stowing your luggage in the overhead compartment, this is a very functional attribute. The neck is made with an incredibly soft 1x1 rib trim, which allows a clean, professional aesthetic. The components of these shirts are meant to visually interact with one another the same way the panels on luxury cars do. The shoulder and side seams do so in close proximity while not seeing any of the stitching or how they're attached. Now, you might notice there's no logos on these shirts. The branding is actually done through a small gray tab on the lower left, which serves as the Signature Collection's branding. This material and color was created as a tribute to the lightweight door handles found in high-end Porsches, the king of understated performance, in my opinion. Please visit standard-h.com for product images and more information. Again, I'm super excited to announce the launch of the Standard H Avant I've been a big fan of today's guest for several years, so I was certainly excited to chat with him. Tim Masso is one of only a few people I watch online for reviews and news within the world of watches. I've also enjoyed his straightforward delivery his seemingly encyclopedic knowledge, and just the fact he and I have other interests in common such as automotive racing and cycling. We talk about how his military service prepared him for his current role as the watch specialist for Watchbox, and how his first 800 watch-related videos were shot to differentiate his content from that of blogs such as Hodinkee. Needless to say, Tim was on to something and much, much more. I wanted to get to know the man under the Oakleys, and today you will too. Tim sure has his hands in more horological cookie jars than one can even imagine, and we get into a healthy amount of car talk as well. Needless to say, I'm excited to have you hear him share it all. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to The Standard Age Podcast. First of all... Thank you so much for taking the time, Tim. Uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, been looking forward to chatting with
1: you. Um, are you from Pennsylvania? No, I'm from New York. So I'm a Northeasterner, but uh, Northeasterner by way of Miami, I guess, because I was with Watch You Want from 2014 to 2017. They moved north, merged with Goughburg, and the result became Watchbox. So that brings me here.
0: Oh, cool. Well, then you, uh, you knocked out a, a future question of mine anyway. Uh, what did your, uh, what'd your parents do when you were a kid?
1: You know, my parents are both nurses. Uh, my dad's a nurse. My mom's a nurse. Uh, my stepdad, he works uh, in, in like televised graphics. So he's always been in televised graphics management. So when you see a Chiron on the screen or the CNN logo over the years or some outrageous poll number, that's usually him.
0: Oh, wow. That's cool. What, uh, what were you into like kind of in high school? Like what were the subjects you kind of studied?
1: I mean, I I was all over the place. Um, physics was great. English was great. Um, French was so-so, but I'm lucky because I've had a bunch of hobbies that have kept me in the French language between F1 racing and the 24 hours of Le Mans, cycle sport in Europe, and of course, you know, the watch industry. it it was an ultra niche. It's almost like learning Latin, learning French. You feel that way when you're learning it in high school. And then you meet a a watchmaker rock star who only speaks French and you're like, thank God I can speak all nouns to him. Nouns and verbs, but only in the present tense. I'm good.
0: (laughs) That's hilarious. What, uh, what kind of music were you into as a kid, like in high school?
1: Almost nothing. I got to be honest. I didn't get into music until I had my first car and I had my own radio, but around the house, it had always been my parents playing their music. And during the 90s, if you heard the kind of music kids were playing, you wouldn't be into it either, right? So like, what the hell is this? But then I discovered 80s rock and 70s rock in, um, you know, my, my adulthood from my teens on thanks to the radio in that car, classic rock, you know, by way of the Eagles, I guess, and Jackson Brown. And then I, uh, I kind of tended towards the harder stuff. And eventually I wound up with like Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Saxon.
0: Oh, amazing. What was your
1: uh, what was your first job? My first job that I consider a job was working in a deli in high school. And it was an interesting job because, you know, for the most part, it was just disposable cash. So I knew that there was going to be a Grand Prix in Washington in the summer of 2002, and it was gonna be the first auto race on the streets of DC in decades. So, you know, that summer job at the deli basically financed a trip for myself and my friend to go to Washington and watch the Panos LMP Roadster beat the Le Mans winning Audi R8 on the streets of DC. And it was like the greatest day of our lives. That's incredible. That was all the money I ever made at the deli.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) That's amazing though. Money well spent for sure. Um, Now then, were you in the military
1: or am I making this up? No, no, I was from 2009 to 2013. I was in the military and I worked with public affairs, which isn't all that different from what I do now, I guess, because it was naval aviation, which was highly technical, hugely specialized, um, you know, kind of impenetrable to kind of civilian minds, like what we were doing. So a lot of what we were doing was training, not, you know, flying off an aircraft carrier and shooting down MiGs. So explaining a, a training base to the local population, you're basically doing driver's ed for pilots, which means you need a very tolerant neighborhood. Um, So I would help to explain the mission of the base to the folks and I would take something that was kind of remote, technical and dense and make it accessible, emotional and, uh, you know, a little bit more open and embraceable. And that's sort of what I do with watches, because especially if you're just getting into the hobby, you know, people talk about movements and calibers and what's in the watch and, you know, unless you're familiar with this stuff from years of studying it, it's almost like a watch is a black box and you have no idea what value or quality looks like. So I try to be that bridge.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a really great analogy as well. What um so you are in the Navy, I guess then.
1: Yeah, I was in the Navy, but only at shore stations. People were like, What ship were you on? I'm like Right. There were air stations stateside, so not not super expensive. You know, I saw the world with watchbox and watch you want. I saw the Florida panhandle with the Navy.
0: Right. Okay, so you're in Florida. Got it. What did you learn from the military that you'd say you still use today? Other than just like kind of the mentality, if you will.
1: I would say, realistically, I learned more about myself, especially in training phases. Uh, you learn to deal with um, emotional challenges, especially that might be something you've never faced in civilian life. Totally. School wasn't super hard, but you know, doing 50 push-ups was hard. Doing 50 push-ups with three gunnery sergeants screaming at you was really hard. And doing 50 push-ups with three gunnery sergeants screaming at you at 6 a.m. was even harder. Right. You know, there's that. There's also, I think, I got back in touch with my writing skills. My first job out of college was as a securitization paralegal at a white shoe law firm in New York. I thought I was going to go into law at the time. And so writing, which had been a huge component of, like, my skill set up to that time, practically from when I was in elementary school, I had something published. Um, I went years without writing. And in the Navy with public affairs, I got back in touch with that, you know, on both the news and creative side. So the Navy kind of got me back in touch with myself. And, you know, unfortunately, I think health wasn't great. And I decided to try my hand in the civilian sector in 2013. And then I'm like, well, you know, I don't have to follow orders. It doesn't have to be naval aviation anymore. I'm on my own time and watches are my hobby. Why not take a stab at that? And if it doesn't work out, you know, write headlines for one of the news agencies, like the real-time headlines you see on cable.
0: So was all of that kind of self-thinking and kind of self-analytics, if you will, or was that, uh, were you talking to anybody about that and them saying, you know, Tim, you're really into watches. Like, why why don't you pursue that?
1: Well, when I was in the Navy, you know, I didn't make that much money as a paralegal. But in the Navy, for the first time, I'm like, well, I've got a good job. I've got no debt. I'm a bachelor. I have plenty of savings. I like watches. Why not buy one? And in 2010, I bought my first luxury watch that I purchased with my own money. You know, it was a Jaeger LeCoultre Master Compressor Extreme World Alarm, which was as big as the name suggests. It's not quite the fine artisanal watch I would later come to like, and it was the size of a fist, but I didn't know any better back then. It seemed like the coolest thing on earth. It was like a whole watch case in one watch. It was an alarm, it was a world time. You know, it was shock resistant, water resistant, loomed, automatic, all these cool things from a brand that sounded really exotic and I had, that watch for, I had that watch for 10 years. It was an incredible piece. Um, that was my first luxury watch, and I think from there I thought, this is almost on the verge of becoming more than a hobby because I think about only three things in my life. My job, my bike, and watches. And my bike is immediate, it's part of my life, my job is every day, but the watches, it's kind of like a community in a world that's pretty remote from me and short of forums and like, you know, blocked watch and hoden key and platforms like that I didn't really experience it firsthand outside the Navy moving back to New York where my family's from I had a lot more opportunities to engage in the watch world because a lot of it's you know local to Manhattan sure that kind of got me into watches
0: well you you went through it quite quickly so can you walk us through a little more detail like how watchbox came about and uh you know kind of
1: your your role there like what's your title exactly My title, because I didn't want something that sounded pretentious and grandiose, I asked that i be called the watch specialist. I'm not the watch expert. I don't want to be called an expert. Expertise is super specialized. Like if you're an expert, you're an expert in just Omega Speedmasters. Like Robert Jan Broer, you know, he's an expert in Speedmasters. I know modern watches best, like watches made since 1980. That's what I know best. That has been my specialty. I don't call myself an expert because I learn something new every day. So if I called myself an expert today, I'd be disproven tomorrow. So I try to be humble about it and just aggregate as much knowledge as I, I can get. Sure. Um, so I'll take it back to the beginning at, at Watch You basically how my role emerged. And then I'll tell you more about what I do. So it was easy to find freelance work on 47th Street with used watch vendors in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't cool enough to work with Hodinkee, but I always admired them. Um, so... I got a real boot camp type crash course in the world of watches, researching for blog articles I wrote. And I had one vendor on 47th Street, and this, I guess, shows you how much I wanted it. He would pay me $15 an article, and I eventually sent him a bill for $1,500 itemized with every article I'd written for him. And I would do this for 10 hours a day, writing for these different vendors because they could outsource almost everything. And generally it was to Eastern Europe, but they couldn't outsource like to Eastern Europe in the Philippines, idiomatic English language copywriting. And that's what I provided them. So I gave them something they couldn't buy overseas at a price that was super reasonable, frankly. Yeah. We're in freelancers. We're getting, you know, 50 to 75 cents a word. You know, I'd be driving like a Ferrari, but I was happy to get into the industry. And that gave me a resume to show, um, when in 2014, a company called Watch You Want was looking for a blogger. And they posted a notice on their blog that they were looking for a blogger. And I was shopping on their website at the time because they had a pretty good website and good photos. And I'm like, well, you know what? It doesn't hurt to reach out. So I sent them you know, a list of all the stuff I've written. I sent them all sorts of links, and they were impressed enough that I met with their their president in New York City when she was in New York for vacation with her family, and I immediately spilled coffee all over her. But, (laughs) and it was a white shirt. It was bad. Um, But I'll tell you this, I made such an impression in the interview that I got a call back and she flew me down to Florida to meet with her and the owner and founder of the company you know see if I could work in their office for a few days and give them a trial run so the test drive worked out well they really liked me I really liked them but I realized it was going to be a white knuckle ride the the traders the salesmen were very intense people the Mm -hmm. environment was immensely competitive it was sink or swim um with a very short leash because the company operated on limited margins. They had limited capital bringing in someone who didn't work mainly on commission was a big decision for them. Right. I got a salary. So that was a special decision they made. So I came in and initially their thought was that I would act as the ghostwriter for the owner who was a good guy, but he he, he was more likely to dictate something than to write it. And he liked to speak in bullet points. So he needed someone to flesh it out in paragraph form. Fun guy though. Um, And so I would be his ghostwriter. And then I would also write blogs for them. And almost immediately, I realized that unless you've been indexing for 10 years, like coding key or a blog to watch, uh, you're basically going to get, you know, blackballed from Google. It's going to be very difficult for you to get on the second, third, fourth, you know, any page near the top of a search. So I said, well, why don't you let me do video? I could just do it on my phone. There's no editing necessary. I'm sure I can do this in one pass. You won't have to do a thing we've got a we've got a YouTube channel that we don't update. You know, there are a lot of YouTube channels out there for small businesses that have been updated like two, three times, and then they lose interest. Um, and a YouTube channel that they'd updated a handful of times, mostly with jib jab videos which was extremely unfortunate. Uh, But, uh, so I started doing these, these phone videos of watches and I would put the watch on my desk on like a wrist pad that you use for typing. And I would have a little polishing cloth that said, watch you want on it. So it was branded. We didn't have graphics. And I would tape the phone to the back of a chair because I didn't have an iPhone holder and I shot 800 videos that way.
0: Wow. So, okay. So what I'm picking up with you is whether it be video in one take or writing, a hundred different entries for fifteen hundred dollars. You have this unbelievable capability for efficiency. Where do you think that comes from? Like, you must be in a very efficient writer. With like, I mean, you must just churn these suckers out. You know what I mean? These articles.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it, it's good to have. It's good to have a skill that's marketable. If I were born with a gift for like juggling, or like you know a mime act or something, I would have been unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy that I had the skill that fit, you know, I, I like to joke with the people who came up, you know, from Watch You on to Watchbox, I say, I found in the, I found a hole in the world shaped like me. So, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm, I'm lucky to be in a position where these skills can be used. And that's all, that's all, you know, down to OJ Watley, Shannon Beck, Danny Govberg, you know, Justin Reese, the people who've supported my career here. So we got a lot of attention from those videos I shot. And ultimately, one of the people who had turned out was watching the videos pretty much you know, in daisy chain fashion. He was like chain smoking the videos. It was Danny Govberg of Govberg Jewelers. He was a big fan. In the past at Watch You Want, you know, we'd send watches for repair at Govberg watch repair and we got a Christmas card from them each year. So there was some familiarity, um, but he bought, he wound up buying after about two and a half years, I was at Watch You Want. He wound up buying the company and he had kind of a broader vision because he had friends from the greater luxury industry. And so in about 2016, he bought Watch You Want. And then in 2017, a company out of Singapore um, that invests in luxury bought up the combined Govberg Watch You Want, rebranded it as Watchbox. And all of a sudden, I find myself as Tim of Watchbox. There's more money for video. We, we finally have a studio where there's a camera I can turn around and point at me for the first time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. People were saying for the first time, you know, I've never seen your face. And I'm like, yeah, there's a reason for that. But all the same.
0: <laughs> uh, get out of here um what, what question like what what do you think is watchbox competitive advantage over other outlets
1: i think number one we're very open about what we're offering we've got great selection it's well photographed we answer questions exhaustively we have a searchable video catalog of every watch i've ever reviewed which at this point is over six thousand models and we offer a seven-day no questions asked return policy because we believe on principle that when you buy something over the internet, by definition, you can't be sure of your purchase until you've worn the watch. So I think that's kind of a big deal. We offer a two-year warranty, which at this point is the same warranty you get from Patek Philippe. Um, and you know, if we're selling you an F.P. Journe Grand Sonnery or a Patek Philippe 5207P, and that needs service, we're sending it to Patek. We're not doing that in-house.
0: Right. So the
1: level of after-sales support we offer is second to none. I'd also say, honestly, uh, we have the best research resource uh, for watch collectors. Whether you're a customer or not, all my videos are publicly listed. And I know for a fact, when I go to watch boutiques around the world, people say they're using those videos to train their sales associates. I know that people have probably researched and confirmed their, you know, order for a purchase that they would make from Crown and Caliber or watches of Switzerland or Watch Finder. And, you know, they find the confidence to make that purchase because they researched the watch on my reviews database. Yeah. So we're very open to that. I think it's good to be part of the community and give something back that's usable, whether or not you're a client. Uh, And then I also think we've got a strong team in place. A lot of sales agencies, if you've ever seen like a car dealership, other watch vendors, there's a ton of turnover. We've got guys who've been with us since 2012, who are veterans of this and they're collectors. They know their stuff. They've done this before. And they're not just telling you that the watch is cool. You know, they're spending their own money on watches. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's that and a lot more The money we put into watchmaking, the money we put into photography, into video, uh, the money we put into bringing clients in so they can try watches firsthand, creating salons for them around the world in New Chattel, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Cleveland, in Philadelphia. Uh, we've got affiliates around the world, including in Dubai, and, and we're global in that sense. So though we are online, we do have physical locations.
0: Oh, that's cool. So how many employees are there in the office with you?
1: I would say pre-COVID, because a lot of people are working from home right now. Sure. Probably about 45 people in the office. Full staff, this building probably is about seventy to seventy-five. And then globally, if you include again, Dubai, Hong Kong, Singapore, New Chattel, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and this, which is the internet headquarters, we've probably got over a hundred people in the company. Wow. So yeah, that's that's quite robust. Um, to express just cause online, and I don't mean to cut you off, but just, this is important. When yeah. you've got a website that says you're a big deal in online sales, it doesn't matter whether you're a 100 employee global company or a dude in his basement, your website can look awesome. True. So it's hard to tell the difference. That's yeah. why I like, to say we, we've got a physical global footprint. We're the only pre-owned vendor that's in every market.
0: Yeah, you know, that's something interesting because it was something that I battle with here, you know, with Standard H is the fact that like, I am I am literally a one-man band. I do absolutely everything. Um, I have no help. Uh, and so from that perspective, you know, there's a lot of brands out there that are in the exact same shoes I'm in, but using, you know, collective vernacular, like our and we, and I was just, I struggle with whether or not to do that because it's like, there's part of me that just feels it's dishonest, you know, because it's like, it's me, you know? So should the, the the vernacular, I mean, and this is obviously kind of way off topic, but it's just knowing what you just said about the guy in the basement kind of thing, he can look like a major corporation. And I mean, I, I could do the same here, but I'm, I'm kind of struggling with, do I make this more personal? Do I make it more grandiose from a perception standpoint? Because perception is reality, you know, to your point.
1: I think you'd be fine saying we because, first of all, you're not a one-man band. You've got all the people who participate in these discussions who hold you in high regard. And then you've got a a large network of fans and followers, and you speak for them. So I don't think it's wrong for you to say we. Um, Now, if you say we've got a three-floor building with central air, heat, and a safe, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think it's fine to say we when you represent a community and you're speaking on behalf of that community.
0: Well that's really kind of you to say and I've and and quite literally I've never thought about looking at it through that lens so I appreciate that. Um yeah that's that's good feedback and really interesting viewpoint. Um well can you talk about just like how many cookie jars your hands are actually in cuz you do interviews on YouTube, you've got your Facebook Live which I love. Um your IG presence obviously, your
1: Instagrams. Um it, it, what am I missing? Okay. So it, it's grown. It's, it's a lot. Um, obviously yeah. I do third party podcast interviews like standard H. I have an Instagram page, which is all video. It's one minute videos and I've got over 1400 of them. I have timmaso.com, which is my podcasts and also the articles I write the full length articles. I've got the Facebook group, which is talking time with Tim Maso. I've got watchbox studios where I do, you know, man in the camera type, Um, you know, news desk commentary. And it's more of a a studio type setup with a person and a face and a set. And those are features on topics and collecting. And then I've got Watchbox reviews, which is just my attempt to create a database of searchable watch reviews. Everything we've ever had, my goal is to have a video for it. So when you go to our website, you can click and watch. In terms of other stuff I do, there is other stuff. I mean, I've done global tours. I've been to Singapore, I've been to Dubai. Uh, I've done in-person events with our collectors. Sometimes I will do a collector conversation where I'll shoot a video interview with a collector and we'll post that too. Or I will do a discussion with a brand CEO, an interview that we'll you know, post in video form. We did a lot of those at Dubai Watch Week in 2019. Sure. I've also written for a blog to watch and quill and pad and IW Magazine. So I've got a little bit of a side interest in that. That's, that's all in promotion of Watchbox. It's not like I've got my own hustle on the side. So it's all those things, Instagram, Facebook, my website, our corporate website, the two YouTube channels and, uh, you know, anyone else who calls really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, making very good use of your personal assistant, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Brandon, Brandon Wood. he's a collector of the highest order. You can find him all over Facebook. I can't even keep track of all the groups he's part of, but he's, uh, he's kind of my eyes outside the office and he helps coordinate this stuff. He keeps my head on straight
0: yeah, please thank him once again for arranging this as well. He was uh, I- immensely helpful. Um, so for your approach with Tim Masso, like your own podcast, are you doing anything to grow the audience like or is it just all organic? Are you taking ads that that sort of thing?
1: I wish we had. I, my watch reviews have never been advertised. Um, uh, my Instagram has never been promoted. Uh, and timmaso.com is just something we we set up organically. We might have sent out a couple of emails to promote it. Sure. You know, in emails to the people who are already within our orbit of you know contacts. Yeah. I would love to put some money into promoting it. My approach is basically response to a demand. People were asking, can I get a podcast when I was shooting these highly visual shows on Watchbox Studios and I was thinking, you know, they're so highly illustrated with 60 to 80 images per show. I don't think it converts. I don't think the format translates, but let me just use kind of florid illustrative imagery in my words and describe what I'm talking about and shift maybe the focus a little bit to make it something you can listen to. And so my idea was really just create a book on tape version of my Monday shows that people could listen to while they're working, working out or driving to work. Yeah. Well, I'm curious how did the 1 minute watch review come about? Everyone's doing pictures and everyone's doing pictures that are highly, you know, enhanced, you know, filter, right. saturation, exposure. And I thought, okay, look, I'm never going to spend 30 minutes preparing an Instagram slide, so let me do what I do well, which is a video, and I can fit it in 60 seconds without a second pass. So it's not like I'm going to be sitting trial and error trying to get it to work all day. So in the space of about six minutes, I can shoot four videos, throw them all up. The average value of the watch is $45,000. If one of those watches sells, you know, that was pretty intense five minutes.
0: Yeah, that's a a good rate of return for sure. As one of the numbered additions, the standard age Defender watch box serves as a salute to our military, as well as a nod to one of my absolute favorite vehicles of all time, the Land Rover Defender. Tireless energy has gone into the transformation of a 50 caliber ammo can into a luxurious product. The box's eight watch capacity is perfect for those with smaller collections or those traveling with a subset of a larger group. The Defender watch box willfully serves as your watch's go-to companion for attending watch meetups or carrying a select arsenal on a trip. Though the name of the watchbox derives from a Land Rover, the details stem from more than one vehicle in a true standard age fashion. The inside houses two wooden trays handmade by artisans in Florence, Italy from poplar wood and then elegantly lined in the same Alcantara suede found in GT-level Porsches and 99% of modern supercars. This plush detail is the exact type of accommodation your timepieces deserve. The padded diamond pattern under the box's lid is a nod to the seat designs found in Mercedes G-Wagons as well as the Koenigsegg Agera R. Also inside is a bespoke aluminum owner's plate displaying your name and box number. Included as a certificate of authenticity, I personally fill out and hand emboss with a standard H logo. The subtle shift logo badge on the outside is made from cast white bronze in the age-old lost wax tradition of jewelry making, then antiqued and hand polished. Each Defender watch box is made to order and placed in a wooden crate that I build and paint in my garage, which will no doubt be a fun event for you to open with the included miniature pry bar. Available in three iterations, the watch box comes in signature standard H garage collection Stealth, which is black with gray interior for a sleek modern aesthetic, OD green with cognac interior for a true military look, and omakase where no two purchases are the same. You and I will exchange an email regarding your personal preferences which will aid in the completion of your Defender watch box and crate as a departure from the normal offering. As an added bonus, 10% of each OD green purchase is donated to Heart and Armor, which is a foundation focusing on veteran health. As always, thank you so much for supporting Standard H. I know before, like I'd heard in through an interview of yours before, you, you somewhat had a theme for your collection personally. Do you have any methods, methodologies, or, or themes that have actually grown over time? Because you were JLC to begin with, kind of all their sort of iconic watches, if
1: you will, at first. Yeah, I wanted to have one watch that represented every strength or historical proficiency of the manufacturing. I thought that was a really great way to avoid buying everything under the sun and loading up on watches that weren't meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think I followed that plan to a fault because there were a lot of watches from brands as disparate as Blancpain, Rolex, Ball, Patek Philippe, Zenith that I would love to own. And Mm -hmm. I ruled them out in a way that was sort of arbitrary and and self-defeating. I think collecting a watch is is an intensely private and personal journey um, where the process of discovery ultimately conveys a lot of the meaning the watch will eventually have to you you know buying can be an experience owning can be an experience but I find that when you've had a long journey to picking a watch that journey imparts meaning to the ultimate purchase that lasts through the ownership experience and I would go out and I'd like six watches at a time so I'm like well all of these are important they fit my framework and you know this fits the collection theme these are all important but it was so hurried it's like ordering Hmm. gourmet food and then eating it Coney island style and right
0: <laughs> yeah you know it's funny you that you mentioned the the buying experience i have yet to purchase a luxury watch in person every single one has either been through the internet or over the phone and it's shipped to me which is just kind of interesting to think about given that like I certainly have access to stores you know but I've never had the champagne. I've never sat in the boutique. I've never done the deal. It's just kind of funny that you bring it up.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm the worst type. I've had the champagne and the chocolate. I, <laughs> <want a> watch. <laughs> I, I have bought, I have bought two new watches. I bought two watches, new. two of my JLCs. Others I bought from other collectors. I bought from pre-owned vendors. I bought from Chrome. I bought a watch everywhere you can buy a watch and I've even traded for a watch. Sure. Um, so it's not unusual to buy a watch online for the most part new watches don't sell online. And you think about how many watch brands there are now. A lot, but not as many as in say the 50s or 60s. There was a lot of bankruptcy in the 70s and 80s. So the new watch brands sell their new watches out of boutiques. And you know some of them now are selling their watches online, but they're treating it as an online version of a boutique where if you buy in the boutique, the price is the price. And if you buy it online, the price is the same price. And I think because online is really the realm of pre-owned It's the Mm -hmm. place where every watch ever made is for sale used. So take every watch ever made, go online, look at the size of that market. Now take all the new watches that are sitting in stores, look at the size of that market, it's a lot smaller. So a person can have a rich and extended and satisfying experience buying watches entirely online without ever sitting in that boutique, because most watches, don't exist in boutiques, they're used watches. Because watches, unlike cars, clothing, you know, racehorses, dogs, whatever have you, things that don't last forever. Watches actually do last forever, which is why you have pocket watches from the 18th century that are still working. And you can go online right now and buy an old Waltham or Illinois pocket watch, you know, from the 1880s, 1890s, that thing works just fine. Watches last forever. So they just keep accumulating. It's like those giant gyres of plastic that float around in the ocean. They last forever. They just keep growing. That's the pre-owned watch market. And, you know, there are some more progressive brands that are selling generally for lower prices that focus on doing business almost entirely online. That's relatively new. That's not Patek Philippe. That's not Longa. That's not Rolex. Sure,
0: sure. What, um, by the way, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today because, you know, this is Wednesday of Watch and Wonders Week. Uh, so you must be a busy man. Um, how do you feel about the releases so far? Are there any standouts?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's one that stands out because it's a combination of things I love. There's a 40 millimeter Breitling Premier Heritage Collection, pistachio dial, no date, green dial, Arabic numerals, really handsome watch, lovely uh, I, I love it as much as I snicker when I look at the salmon <laughs> dial, you know, kind of shall we say, high horology inspired piece. Right. Th- that's the name of the game in the watch business. I mean, Zenith did it earlier with a watch that bore, you know, resemblance to a famous Geneva made chronograph. And, and Breitling clearly is not a competitor to, a, you know, another famous Geneva made chronograph. So I thought the pistachio dial was perfect because it didn't seem like anything else. It was very original, nicely sized, and it is clearly a Breitling. It's a great offering. And it also proves that Breitling's premier line uh, is growing up beyond the shadow of, say, the Navitimer, which is important from a you know brand growth standpoint. They need to do that. Sure, I would sure. also say, I really loved the new, I actually kind of dug the 43 millimeter Big Pilot on a bracelet, it's bold, it's different. No date, handsome, nicely sized a different kind of look. And I like the general move towards quick release straps. We're seeing it with IWC, with Panerai. It's something that Hublot and Cartier and, you know, IWC with the AquaTimer have been doing forever right. uh, or it's doing it too this year. So it's really nice to see quick releases, especially ones like the Panerai system and the IWC system where the quick release is in the strap, not the lug. So the watch will still take normally sized aftermarket straps. That's a great trend. Yeah. You know, that's kind of different from the first generation of quick release systems from, you know, Cartier and Ublo that were wonderfully convenient, but you were absolutely boxed into using their straps. Gruble Forcey's new uh, GMT sports watch is, is fantastic in a kind of watch for house money way. Right. You know, but it's like with stuff like the Pagani Huyara or the, you know, Koenigseguimera. It's not for me, but I'm right. happy to live in a world where such things exist. It's inspiring.
0: Oh no, a hundred percent. What uh, what are your feelings on the Rolex offering?
1: Before I, I opine on Rolex, one more thing I want to throw out there: the Sartori Ballard um, SB05 is awesome. So far, it's my favorite new watch of the year. I want to put that out there. Okay new and young brand that's doing wonderful things.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen it. What Can you give us the 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 less than one minute watch review of what it looks like maybe, your your book's on tape?
1: <laughs> I, I would say if you look at the dials they're offering, the quality of them, the movement is from La Joupere, the case is from Carrie Vaudelainen, and, and the dials, you can get many different types. You can get Meteorite, you can get Guilloche, you can get Fired Titanium, but when you get the watch with the Fired Titanium dial, it feels like a combination of the best parts of Ming, de and the F.P. Journe Chronomet Bleu, all in a reasonably priced watch. So cool. Wow, that's
0: quite the trio. Um, Yeah, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah, we were going to mention Rolex. What, What are you thinking?
1: Well, I like green dials. They're super cliched, but as a person who's liked green forever and has waited essentially, I don't know, my entire life as a collector for this fad to come, I'm gonna like bask in it and roll in it and enjoy all the new green dial releases from Rolex and Patek and Breitling and Panerai. And that's just the year to date. So I'm definitely into the green dial trend the new Palm dial on the Datejust is almost as weird as the electric blue dial on the Milgauss Z-Blue. So it's one of those things that proves people at Rolex are still having fun with this, which is always wonderful because Rolex is a black box and kind of, it's opaque to the world but when you see the product, you can infer something about the people designing it. And uh, with a palm green dial, you no, know, literally palm leaves on a green dial, they're having fun. Yeah. The Daytona with a meteorite dial on an oyster flex strap, that looks really cool. But I think these are degrees of difference. I think Rolex realized if it needed a colossal brand reboot or massive model launch, it got that last year with the sub. And I don't think Rolex wanted a blockbuster style year that was going to draw too much attention because um, the brand is already quite hot and I think they understand that. Yeah, if it ain't broke Yeah, you, you don't need to toot your own horn when you've got a perpetual air raid siren on So right. <laughs> The new Explorers are nice um, It was hard to call you know, the shots this year We thought there'd be a an, uh, 50th anniversary Explorer 2 It happened, but it was very subtle Like yeah. The bare minimum that might have changed, a new movement That's pretty much what they did it looks good though, but evolution, not revolution. Um, the Daytonas are all attractive. And I think it's interesting that they are trying to push precious metal a little bit more because I think that takes some of the the, the demand pressure off steel watches. What I thought they might do was offer a an oyster flex strap on a two-tone sub or a two-tone Daytona just because If any modern Rolex product type needs a little bit more popularity to take pressure off steel and and, and precious metal, it would be the two-tone, which still doesn't have quite the same collector buy-in and less gold and more rubber would have been a great way of making it more palatable.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's an interesting take. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Explorer 1 that's two-tone then?
1: Well, I think there are two things to say about the Explorer 1. A lot of us had predicted that there'd be a revival of the 36 millimeter Explorer and that there were too many three-hand, no-date, sports-style, basic 39 to 41 millimeter watches in the collection. There was the 39 millimeter Explorer, there was the Air King, there was the Milgauss, there was the new Waste Perpetual 41, and I think we all guessed that the Milgauss being the oldest model line was the one that would probably be discontinued or rebooted, and in fact, they decided to get rid of one of those watches, but it was the, the... Explorer 39 that got the axe. Right. So the two tone is cool. I think two-tone like like colored gold works best in a small size. I think otherwise, you know, it's one thing to be explosively extroverted in detail, and it's another thing to be extroverted in scale. But sometimes when you combine the scale and the detail, you lose some of the, the discretion and the taste. Um, And I think 36 for two-tone, especially given a traditional size with traditional yellow gold and steel, it's an effective look. Right. We'll see if it has a lot of uptake. I think this is something that's probably aimed more at East Asian markets than North America and Latin America and Europe. Uh, So I think it'll probably find a receptive audience there.
0: Yeah. I was kind of surprised, honestly, by the two-tone sea dweller personally, like it grew on me. I wasn't you know i'm not a super stoked two-tone guy uh, aside from my grandfather's date just from the 80s that I, he gifted me but you know outside of that i'm i'm not much of a huge two-tone guy but the
1: sea dweller grew on me it's a nicely made watch the, the good thing about rolex today is that you can't buy a bad rolex watch you know, they say <laughs> in the car market like you can't buy a bad car anymore there are no you know renault lacars or yugos or you know self-immolating alfa romeos (laughs) available on the market today like in the 70s and 80s you could buy a genuinely disastrous car you could buy a triumph stag Uh, today with rolex you know the stamped clasps are long gone hollow lugs hollow center links hollow end links they're long gone the rolex that doesn't live up to your expectations because it feels like a tag hoyer long gone the bracelets are rock solid. The clasps seem as though they were hewn from solid ingots of metal. And when you hold something like the two-tone Sea Dweller in your hand, the impression you get is that it might not be your style, but it feels like it'll last forever. It feels yeah. like it's, it's really impressive.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, speaking of Rolex and, and you know, uh, I guess um, you alluded to Paddock earlier. Uh, I'll say that. What are your thoughts on hype
1: culture? You know, it's primarily a function of social media, because if you look at all the things that define the actual watch market today, all of it existed in the 2000s and for the most part, the 2010s. And I'll also say this, for the most part, it's going to be Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, Facebook, a little bit of YouTube, but it's not really YouTube because YouTube almost requires too much of an attention span for hype culture. Yeah. So I think it's unfortunate, but I also think it's something you can easily liberate yourself, you know, there from, because if you can get over like the three or four brands that are subject to it, and you can get over the probably less than one dozen models that are involved, if you wanted to buy a Rolex Milgauss or Yachtmaster three days ago, you would find for the Yachtmaster, uh, you know, the 126622, that pre-owned prices are about 12,000 to 12,500, and new prices are about 12,000 to 12,500. You know, the why i think it's a 12,400 watch. That watch, though, it's a Rolex and a sports watch, and mostly steel and 40 millimeters, and looks like a Rolex with a rotating bezel. It's really not caught up in the hype culture. So even though by all rights it should be a watch that. You know, is being sold used for $30,000 or wait listed for years, that and the Milgauss, you'd pretty much pay used what you'd pay new. And if you order that watch new, there'll be a very short wait, if any. So the hype culture, unfortunately, is very deep and very narrow. Uh, it's kind of like the Suez Canal. And as you may have noticed, that's a recipe for disaster at times. Right. So, you know, it's something where it takes two to tango. First, there's the hype culture that exists mostly online. And second, there's the individual's buy in and refusal to direct his attention away from it. Because there are great watches in the Rolex catalog that aren't waitlisted or marked up. There's the whole world of Breitling where nothing is marked up or waitlisted. There's Parmigiani. There are uncool brands like Glasuta Original, like Longa, Odysseus Accepted. Like there's so much out there that if you're willing to affirmatively search for something that's not trending, you're going to find awesome watches at great prices. And the vast majority of used watches are selling for like 60 cents on the dollar, if that, and there are hundreds of millions of them from which to choose.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an extremely valid point. Um, Off the cuff, have you ever suffered from watch fatigue?
1: Well, everything watch related is ultimately off the cuff. (laughs) Yeah. I was at Baselworld in 2016. It was my first ever Baselworld. And after, I guess, about three days of awe, I'm like, oh, I need to ride my bike and look at some cars. I need to shift gears. But I'll also say this, when I suffer watch fatigue, I try to focus on some other aspect of the watch experience that's not just that one steel Rolex Patek AP or, you know, Langa. And I'll say, look, I really wanna learn more about Vacheron jump hours and retrogrades because well, I'm burned out on new watches, all that cool and quirky stuff from the 90s, like the Saltarello, the Wandering Hours, the Mercator, I, I really need to bone up my knowledge to be proficient. And it's fun for me to discover again. And the watch world is so large that as long as you don't let other people direct your attention, you make like an affirmative choice, you can usually step aside, take a breather, enjoy one of your other hobbies, and then get back into it from a different perspective. You know, it's like asking an engineer, you know, do you ever get burned out on math? Probably. But after, you know, engineering the race car, there's an America's Cup yacht coming up. And after that, you know, he's going to be on a race crew at the Reno air races. And it's one, you know, mathematical challenge after another, but an entirely different paradigm. And the watch world is big enough that I'm able to use that to my advantage and not burn out. Yeah, that's great. You're a fan of the Octafinissimo, as am I. What are a few reasons why? It's, it's great because it's a combination of two things that really work well. One is confidence of, you know, Fabricio Buonamassa, who's been with the brand basically since it was bought by Bulgari. Um, you know, the, the Gerald Genta brand and the Daniel Roth brand, they were bought by Bulgari from the Hourglass holding in 2000 and they were gradually folded into Bulgari and they became one in the year 2010 and they retired the Gerald Genta brand for a while. And he's been there since the beginning. He inherited that octo shape. You know, it's been said that one of the reasons, for example, that the engineer at IWC went from being a '70s inspired design, you know, with Gerald Genta as the root, to being a '50s inspired design that no longer looks like the Genta, is that the design director at IWC didn't want to stick with a design that preceded his time at the brand. So, Juan took that Bulgari octo design inherited from Gerald Genta. And said, I'm comfortable refining this instead of trying to be a revolutionary. I think, you know, as Mies van der Rohe would have said, God is in the details. And he believed that. Let's make it thinner. Let's make it finer. Let's take it up market. And most importantly, since Bulgari is stockpiling dial makers, case makers, bracelet makers. And now with Gerald Genta and Daniel Roth, they had a movement engineering house. Let's put all that together in one watch. And I'm going to refine the shape. We're going to thin it out. We're going to compete in a category where Bulgari you know has not been dominant in the past which is high horology men's mechanical watches and so it's a wonderful fusion of really original ideas like that that movement which is ultra thin and ultra wide uh like the specific Aspect ratio and detailing of the Octo Finissimo, where you know the whole thing is media blasted in titanium or polished and satinated in steel, with a dial that's also titanium and a clasp that folds into a recess in the bracelet, so the clasp is as flat as the case itself. All of those little details, with the original shape, added up to a winner and a GPHG, you know, men's watch prize winner in 2017. So it's a great watch because the designer was comfortable building on history. And then deciding, I'm not going to make this thing a monument to myself. I'm going to make 50 detail changes that are going to add up to a meaningful big change. Rather than just saying, you know, the Bulgari Octo is now the, I don't know, Bulgari Dodecahedron. Like, I I don't know, but it's not, it's not a new thing. It's a new version of an old thing, which is great. What are a couple of things that you think that could make the watch industry better? I think realistically, The watch industry would be better if, first, there was a little bit more standardization in the way watches are described, because that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I think it's really challenging, especially in the pre-owned space. We're investing tremendously in everything from refinishing to watchmaking to photography and video. Um, So when we describe the condition of a watch, it's a different meaning than when Crown Calibre describes the condition of a watch. Watches of Switzerland Mm describes the condition of a watch. And, you know, watch finder describes the condition of a watch. And then every individual eBay seller and, you know, one horse used vendor, he also has his own definitions. Um, So that's a little bit unfortunate. I I would also love to see, um, frankly, a little bit more of an openness by the the watch industry itself Mm -hmm. to collaborate with people who are, you know, journalists in the industry, personalities in the industry, online folks. Um, and not be afraid of folks in the pre-owned space. Like, I would love to be able to have a talk with Omega about Omega watches, and, you know, I I would hope they would be willing to speak with me in spite of the fact that, you know, my company on the Govberg side doesn't sell Omega watches, and on the Watchbox side, you know, we only sell pre-owned watches. I don't think that in the car world, for example, there's like a, a festering enmity between you know, Jaguar, Mercedes, BMW, Audi, Ferrari, and Barrett-Jackson or RM or Christie's. I, I think those, there's a lot of, I think, sympathetic consideration and a mutual appreciation between the world of high-end pre-owned cars and high-owned new cars. And I think there's really kind of a non-talking relationship between the OEMs in the watch industry who are making new watches and the people who are determined to do pre-owned at a very high and standardized level. So there's that. Sure. I also think that frankly, it would be cool if the trade shows were to come back as more of a more of a collector oriented experience because I think that there were a lot of regional shows that were mostly designed to bring watches to the end user like watches and wonders, Miami, you know, watches and wonders, Hong Kong salon, QP Dubai watch week, and all those events, watch time, LA watch time, New York, those aren't like Basel world or SIHH, where the brands roll out the new models with incredible pomp circumstance and pretense. And if you're not a journalist or a vendor, you're screwed. Technically you can attend, but you can look at watches in the vitrine and that's basically it. Right.
0: You know, Right. Yeah. Yeah. No touchy.
1: (laughs) So I think it would be great if in the future all the great brands would say, look, we're going to do like one Midwest, one East Coast, and one West Coast full, you know, red carpet rollout for people to come and see the watches. And I think a real model for how that could work would be something like the Patek Philippe Grand Exhibition, which is one of the finest and and most open and unassuming high-level consumer events I've ever seen. I was in New York in 2017 for the grand exhibition, and Patek was very clear right at the street level, open to all. People would walk up in tank tops and flip-flops, you know, on vacation in, in July in New York City, and they'd walk right into a three-story indoor building containing one quarter of the Patek Fleet Museum and every watch in the current collection. People were allowed to try watches, they were allowed to see Guar and Enameler and gem setters and you know, miniature painters working and if you look at the incredibly human and approachable scale of that even though it was huge it was very intimate and folk you know folks first and folks focused so i think that sort of thing with like a, a salon qp watches and wonders watch time dubai watch peak week sort of you know mid-sized show scale would be great because then people could get their hands on things that otherwise they're only going to see online or you know, they're going to read about in a magazine if they're still there's still watch magazines out there. Not as many, but there are some. Yeah. So I think narrowing the gap between the new watch manufacturers and clients uh, would the trade shows are dead. Like we're never going to have like Geneva Motor Show style watch rollouts. world as we knew it has gone and so is SIHH. But if we can keep these shows accessible so people can see the watch, try the watch and learn about the new stuff, I think we can still have in-person events that are collector centric even if the trade shows themselves are dead, because there's nothing like trying a watch on. In the end, owning and experiencing watches will always be intimate and immediate. And I think the way they come to customers should be that way as well.
0: If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend, Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Doki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand, Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram, at ContonementCo, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O, or visit them at contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Wanted to shift gears a little bit. Uh, You're an American muscle car fan. Uh, Self-proclaimed liberal guy who likes cars that crap all over the environment. Yeah.
1: I don't know how self-proclaimed liberal I am cuz I'm selling luxury products to luxury buyers and yeah I love V8s and I love, you know, burning rubber and burning hydrocarbons and all that stuff. <laughs> I'd say I'm a mass of contradictions and an utter hypocrite. So that would be a fair characterization.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: <laughs> Big fan. I'll be honest, I walk to work, so I'm I'm seriously denting my my car guy credentials right there and my daily driver is a 6-year-old compact plug-in hybrid hatchback. I will redeem myself by reminding you that I'm a race fan, and uh, if everything works out, I'm going to be taking delivery of a Panos Roadster in the next week or two. So, you know, that's that's about as pointless a car as has ever been invented. So, you've got a car that's got 300 horsepower to basically travel from your driveway to your driveway, but it puts a smile on your face. Right. It's not yeah. gallons per miles; it's smiles per miles. So, yeah, I love cars, and you know, I think it's you look at me; I'm, I'm like skin and bones. Do I like ice cream? Of course I like ice cream. Just not every day, you
0: know? Right,
1: right. It's important. Just like if you've got a wife and kids, you probably want to make sure you're taking care of them, but you also need to have some me time and some me money and a watch that's just for you and a solid hour online playing on forums. So I'm all about a balance in life. And I guess you know, you could you could view that as flexible, or you could view that as compromised. And that's gonna be a matter of perspective.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny, just with the ethics of my company, like I try to preach balance all the time, whether it be work life balance, or even just like, you know, the balance within the way you exercise, you know what I mean? Like keeping it, switching it up all the time. It's always a good thing. And uh, keeping things fresh. Um, What got you into
1: cars initially? Anyway, you know, apparently, my, I'm, I'm taking this on faith, but my first word was car, um, so it started early. I just I just like the way they look, the way they sound, the fun of riding in them, the romance of going someplace, and, you know, obviously, when I got old enough, uh, the fun of driving, the experience of driving a driver's car. It doesn't have to be 1,000 horsepower. Like, I talk about the Koenigsegg and the Paganis, and I wouldn't want that stuff. Like, I want a car that's very elemental, that's very involving, And, you know, that could be something like a Panos Roadster that's got a lot of horsepower and goes really fast. Or it could be like an Austin Healy bug-eyed Sprite, 46 horsepower, four cylinders, 950 CC, but it's fun. It's an engaging little ride. You know, it's like, it's like a go-kart with doors.
0: Yeah, totally. I I thought that early on, like, because of, you know, our sort of generation and, and age, um, you know when the Mini Cooper S was first launched, whatever it was, early two thousands or something, like that felt like a go kart to me. And then of course, you know, the Italian job came out, and then it just made it look like a go kart. So that was kind of cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's fun when you see an original Mini. You're like, oh my god, it was that small. You know, yeah. you thought original. Yeah. You see the original like you know, Morris, Mini, Minor, you're like, oh my God. But uh, yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing where those early, that first generation new Mini, and I, I want to say it came to the US market in 2003. If you've got that Cooper S with a manual transmission or God help us, the Grand Prix, which is amazing, you do have like a go-kart and it's not the fastest thing on earth. Yeah, I know it's a BMW and there are faster BMWs in the world, but how fast are you going to go on the road? And if not the road, how often are you going to go on a track? And most people won't. So I wanted to buy a car that I thought was, you know, kind of a good forward-looking sort of use of cash, like something that'll never be worth less. And someday, who knows? Maybe Don Payneos will be looked at as the modern-day Briggs Cunningham. It's possible, uh, but you know, looking at something like a Corvette C6 ZR1 that's got 600 horsepower and weighs 3,400 pounds, and I realize as fast as that is, it'll never feel fast. Unless you're on a track and you're airing it out and I don't have those kind of driving skills and I don't have a track either. So if you're driving that car 60 miles on the road, you're paying a lot of money for basically what amounts to a faster Buick, it's very comfortable and quiet and isolating. Whereas if you're in a, something like a Panos or a Mazda Miata or a Mini or a Lotus Elise, you know, you've got a car with a low belt line where you know, can hang your arm out over the side, the winds in your hair, everything feels very immediate because there's no filter between you and the road. The steering rack is kicking back the way the best steering racks do. And uh, you're just very engaged in the process. And so that's the kind of car I like. And it sort of carries over into my taste in watches. Initially, I thought I liked things that were monstrously complicated, and eventually I realized that I didn't like the size and thickness that came with complication. And I started, you know, really switching my preference towards things that were utilitarian, like Zins, or thin, like the Bulgari Octo Finissimo. It's, it's just that realization that the car you idolized as a kid, the flagship Corvette or the V12 Ferrari might not really be what you want as an adult.
0: Yeah. What, what, what would you say you've gotten the most risk time with uh, during COVID specifically? Matt, right there. Zen. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great piece.
1: I love it. I've been a one watch guy since 2018 and I think what'll happen eventually is um, my dad and my my dad and my stepdad are eventually both going to have zens. So I've given a Zen to my mom and my stepdad and I'm probably going to wind up giving this to my dad and that'll be that'll be his watch and then I'll bring something in and that'll that'll be my new watch to wear for a couple of years. Probably an independent, probably Debitoon. I, I would like that, you know. I think that's one of the few cases where my my taste and expectations for a super watch actually actually meet the reality of the product. Those are great watches.
0: Sure. Well, you've uh, you've kind of alluded to it as well. Cycling. You've you've mentioned bikes. You and I both share uh, a love of cycling. What got you into riding bikes?
1: Honestly, I was a kid and I rode for transportation. So when you're right. a kid. <laughs> you know, in the United States, it means you grew up depending on whether you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, you grew up either with a BMX in the 80s or a mountain bike in the 90s. And so my friend and I, we would ride our bikes because that was our only way of getting out of our, you know, geographic locality. We didn't have cars when we were 11, 12, you know, 13 years old. Um, So I'd always ridden for transportation. And, you know, me and my friend, we would go, we'd ride to the next town offer, you know, I, I think for 11 bucks, we could buy a Taco Bell grande meal and eat the whole thing. The grande meal mexican pizza drinks and 10 tacos it was great <laughs> fantastic um and then as i got older you know i rode a bike for transportation at college and i didn't actually ride a road bike until i was out of college i didn't ride a road bike until 2007 and the reason i took it up was because i realized i could go faster and farther and i knew i had decent fitness but these guys who looked old and kind of fat would go flying past me on the road and I'm like to hell with that you know slick tires on a mountain bike's not going to do it so I'm gonna get myself a road bike and of course my first day on a road bike back in 2007 I'm like, how do you shift this thing?
0: Oh yeah, the STI shifters.
1: You know, now it's like telepathic but in 2007 I'm like risk rip shift like
0: yeah, yeah exactly. so you're so you're riding uh, DI2, I take it
1: Yeah, I actually have first generation DI2. I was an early adopter back in 2010 and it's now like an orphaned system because nothing on current DI2 is back compatible. So my bike is like a museum of technology that was considered really like forward looking in 2010. And it's like my phone, the eight year old phone, the watch I've worn for three years going on four. Um, You know, my little hatchback that I've had for six years, I I tend to pick something I like and stick with it. And so I've got that bike that was built with like a hybrid titanium carbon frame because that was state-of-the-art in 2010. First generation Di2 was state-of-the-art back then. If you were a serious cyclist, you know, you would glue up and use tubular tires, so I still do. No kidding. Yeah. That's awesome. I've ridden more miles on tubular tires than clinchers. Wow, that's crazy. So, so what are you riding? What, who made the frame? It's a Bill Holland Exagrid. It was a custom built bike that I ordered from Bill Holland to San Diego back in 2010. He delivered it in, uh, in late 2011. And so it's, it's custom sized for me but I don't really have a weird particular shape. So not a lot of custom was necessary. I wanted him to tune the handling characteristics and the ride more than anything. So I got a bike that was not, you know, smooth riding, but fast handling. Those are generally two things you don't get together. Um, and I put a lot of aluminum parts on it mostly because forged alloy was the thing back in 2010. Now everything's carbon fiber, but it's a great criterium bike because if anyone ever crashes me, I'm not gonna break you know, a stem or a handlebar or a seat post or a saddle everything's metal but the bike weighs 20 pounds. Sure. Are you are you racing crits? You know, I used to and I'm thinking of getting back into it. I do race time trials at this point. Oh cool. I had a bad knee that I hurt in my last year in the Navy. And you know crits are very sprint oriented and with no currencies I'm looking like oh god I'd have to start cat five like I wanna I want to live. I don't want to be in a cat five sprint. Right. I'm just waiting until my knee is strong enough that I can just ride off the front of the cat five crit, and not have to worry about sprinting against, you know, cat five and quote unquote sprint trains. Yeah. Crash five is not where you want to be as, you know, an increasingly middle-aged cyclist.
0: So uh, do you, do you have a TT bike as well?
1: No, no. I, I just use clip-ons and I ride the TTs on, on my road bike because you know, unless you're doing a longer event, fitness is going to be the difference maker. If you're doing a longer event, then arrow is everything. But if you're doing just like a short event, and there are other people turning out on road bikes, you're okay. Also, frankly, I know that I can get lower than anyone else on the bike, because I can still put both feet behind my head at age 36. And I'm guaranteeing you none of the other guys in like a master's age class can still do that. Wow. As long as I can, like, Fold myself cellophane style to my my top <laughs> tube and my my bars. I'm going to be good aerodynamically. I'll be good.
0: That's absolutely hysterical. Um, you're rocking Oakleys on top of your head. You always do. What's the model? Has it always been the same model? Have you always been an Oakley guy?
1: I had one set of Oakleys from 2008 to 2016. Like I said, I, I'm one thing forever. I eat the same food every day, twice a day, so I'm very predictable.
0: Whoa! Well, what's the meal?
1: It is a combination of cottage cheese, black beans, oranges, bananas, apples, and oatmeal. No kidding. I'm very boring.
0: (laughs) What, like, where did that recipe come from? Is it all at once or you mean just throughout the day?
1: Oh, no, all at once.
0: No kidding. So it's, yeah, I was going to say it's kind of high carb, but like natural sugars as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, make no mistake like a 3,500 calorie a day diet. People are like, you're so thin. Do you eat so little? No, I just ride that much. Um, so if I am doing an event though, uh, it's, you know, it's going to be rocket fuel. Like the day I'm going to be riding with a bunch of cat ones and a pace line. That's the day captain crunch comes out. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Amazing. All right. Do you, how many days a week are you riding?
1: I I condition every day. I've got sort of a structured training. Um, Like I've been riding with fast guys and and doing like time trials for the last couple of years. Um, But again, not not really any criterium. So this might be the year I start up again. And I'm on a structured thing where it's relatively easy pace for four days a week. And then I do three 60 minute like VO2 max intervals on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, uh, you know, I've got kind of the highs and the lows with recovery built in. You could average it all out, but I would say if you average it all out, it's about, it's about 1000 kilojoules a day, more on those, you know, high-end days and less on the recovery days.
0: On the VO2 max stuff, are you doing that on a trainer or are you doing it outside?
1: I'm, I'm doing it on rollers in my basement. Oh, wow. Um, so I think you're, yeah, all the sweat that that generates, it's going to be the basement floor because um, that's too much <laughs> cleanup. Uh, And also the basement, especially here in Pennsylvania, where we get those mid-90s days with humidity in the summer, the basement's where you want to do that. I do all my training on rollers, and that's something that triathletes started a few years ago that was really innovative and, in my opinion, intriguing, because people talk about riding on the road. When you you ride on the road, unless you're out in Lancaster, there are stop signs, there's traffic, there are intersections, there are lights. It's going to be very stop and go. Sometimes you get a tailwind, sometimes you get a headwind. It's very hard to control the workout Um, and you know, I blow guys to pieces on the hills because I ride with resistance on the rollers. I use a true trainer that's got a magnetic bar. Um, I I ride no hills in my conditioning, but I'm fast up them because, again, five watts per kilogram, 139 pounds, I'm going to move.
0: Holy smokes, man. You weigh 139 and five watts per kilo. That's that's like that's like pro status, man.
1: Holy. Jeez. Maybe in an alternate life at this point, you know, at the, at the best, I'm going to be the breakaway guy who spoils the town line sprint. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's cool. Well, I, I sort of interrupted us on the Oakley front. Was there like an initial ad that hooked you on Oakley or was it just a fitment or what?
1: No, I, w- I was riding around wearing a set of broken wireframe fashion glasses like in my early days of cycling I would wear street clothes riding a road bike so my mom bought me the glasses for my birthday in 2008 said like you got to stop wearing you know those like t-shade things and so I'm like, please thank you so I wore those from 2008 to 2016 when the lenses at that point looked like they'd been assaulted by a Brillo pad um, and then a friend here at Watchbox said, Tim, it's time for new glasses. And we were on a visit to New York where I was I was actually hosting an auction. I was I was the color and knowledge guy, and they had an auctioneer simulcasting from Berlin. Uh, we stopped in Times Square and there was an Oakley store there, and, and she bought me these glasses. And so people ask, Why are they on your head? And I say they're on my head because I won't lose them when I'm not using them. So that's something right.
0: Right. Yeah, that's fair. Well, just wrapping up here, and again, thanks for taking the time. Um, Just a random question. You have $100,000 to spend on watches. What's in your collection?
1: $100,000 to spend on watches. I'm going to get myself a Blanc 50 Fathoms blue and titanium brushed finish, a Ball Engineer Two Magneto S. I'm going to get myself a... Mih watch, the original one, built by you know Paul Gerber and designed by Ludwig Oxlund and Christian Gaffner. I'm going to buy myself, and it's going to be a lot of smaller watches, with the exception of one case where I'm going to beg and plead with Dibutun to make a watch they prototyped called the DB Twenty Seven Polo. It had a 5000 Vickers coating, and apparently you could assault it with a razor or a key and not leave a mark in it. Five day power reserve, floating lugs, automatic winding, indestructible, jump hour, scrolling minutes. And it was designed to be whacked with polo mallets. So, you know, on top of those, maybe the Zenith Captain Windsor annual calendar palladium dial, the palladium smoked fume that they made. Um, and I got to give a nod to Rescence. I'd get myself a Rescence type type three N, the night blue and uh you know i think once i've got my Debatoon with that group i'm probably saving the rest for service because if i don't i'll be crying later <laughs>
0: fair enough mr tim masso this was a lot of fun man i really appreciate you taking the time uh is there anything else you wanted to promote or anything
1: other than, you know, talking time with Tim Masso, I'm chatting live every Wednesday evening at 5 p.m. on my Facebook group. So if you want to continue the discussion, you know where to find me.
0: Sweet, which is how this thing was born. So I appreciate you uh, giving me a shout through the comments. And uh, yeah, look forward to being in touch. Thanks so much. I'd like to thank Tim again for taking the time to be a part of the show. Uh, As always, thanks to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise cancellation headphones. This marks the end of season four. Uh, I'm going to take about a month off, and I will catch you guys in late June, I guess. Uh, Really appreciate you guys listening, and I'll catch you soon. Take care of yourselves.